0: Good morning let's try it one more time good morning. good morning it is great to see you guys if you're expecting a uh, much more wonderful person up here named Tony walls uh, sorry to disappoint you uh, today I'm covering for him so you're stuck with the second string player uh, hope none of you paid to see this game so all right uh, I want to take a moment also to uh, to say uh, we're going to cover a little bit of Luke that uh, Tony skipped in his series, and, uh, but we're going to expand it and take kind of a wider view today also. And I want to take a second also to just say thanks so much to my family for their love, support, and patience with me as I have disappeared way too often into the cave of sermon preparation. So today, let me ask a question for all of us. Who am I to judge? Who are you to judge? We all make judgments about everything, every day, whether we're conscious of it or not. On the one hand, making judgments is essential to navigate and survive life. No one would survive long in this world refusing to use the memory of what he or she had learned from the experiences the day before. A child, for instance, has to learn that the red light on the stove means crispy, not pretty, So on the other hand, though, judgments about good versus evil or right and wrong, that's a little trickier. It can be viewed in a very negative way even today, and yet we still all do it. Someone can criticize our group that we're in, and we can often respond with, don't judge me, or who are you to judge me? And when we do the same to other groups, we can get the same responses back. So who's right? Who's wrong? Is there a your truth versus my truth? Or is it like the album title from the group Extreme, three sides to every story? Yours, mine, and the truth. You have to pardon me. I'm a bit of a music fan, so you might find a few music references in my sermon. So is there good and evil? Can we as Christians judge anyone else, if at all, Could it be that judging is really about using good judgment versus bad judgment? So today we'll look at some of the main places where the Bible talks about this, and some scriptures that kind of repeat points will be left out just for the time. So before we actually look at the scriptures that directly mention judging, let's consider a couple of things. In uh, Romans 1, verse 18... It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Next, in Psalm 23, 3, he says, He leads me into paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So from these two verses, it shows the story of our lives can tell two very different things. One, our doing evil can unknowingly convince others that God is either evil, he doesn't care, or he's not there at all. On the other hand, our doing right can truthfully show a God who cares about connecting people in God. As well, we're commanded to hate what is evil and cling to what is good in Romans 12, 9. That's that's not on the slides, sorry. Uh, But as a result... We have to discern the difference between good and evil, and to represent God's good name, and to do that, we as Christians must unavoidably make moral judgments. So, are our lives telling a true story about God today? To know, we must use good judgment. So, let's take a look here at some of the scriptures now. Going back to an earlier question, what does the Bible say? Can we judge? Well, simply put, it says you should judge and you should not judge. Everybody clear? All right. See you next Sunday. Great. Okay. Maybe we can take a little closer look at some of these seemingly conflicting commands that God gives us. Uh, Be patient today. I hope your uh, scripture reading muscles are strong. All right. We're going to take a look into the word, get to the truth my second main point, let's look at whether or not we can judge and what God would consider good and bad judgment. When we think about this topic, probably the most quoted thing, especially from unbelievers, is the Bible says don't judge, right? Anybody heard that? But a better question, well, does the Bible say that? Yes. But a better question would be, Is that all the Bible says about judging? So let's take a look at Luke chapter 6, verses 37 through 42. Uh, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Won't they both fall into a pit? Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eyes, but don't notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out that speck in your eye, when you yourself don't see the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So this passage does not prohibit judging, if you look at it. It simply points out one of the most important rules for good judgment, no hypocrisy. So judgment based on hypocrisy destroys the greatest things to God, love and family. And judgment without this is fully based on love. There's, there's a writer named Matt Smethurst, and he says about this uh, scripture that Jesus condemns, quote, a readiness to magnify the errors of our neighbors and make the worst of them. Self-righteousness is the art of always being bothered most by someone else's sin. End quote. So self-righteousness is truly the fruit of hypocrisy. Next, we can see that God deals with hypocrisy by two things, being spiritually locked together. Your neighbor's test score and your test score. The standards you use for finding good or evil are automatically applied to you at some point as well. If he gets an F on the test because of doing wrong, you get the same F on the test if you do the same wrong. And even if your sin is different, both you and the other person still get an F if you give, a license, give yourself a license to sin. Let's be clear, no sin is worse than another sin, because every sin did what? Nailed Jesus to the cross. It required him to do that. That was the only way, death to take it away. So let's be clear on that, especially as we go forward. As well, the spirit behind your judging and others' judgment of you will also be locked together. If there's a smile and laugh as you tighten the screws on someone else, the same screws will be applied to you. But if you seek understanding with compassion, you find the reality of the situation, or if you give him or her the benefit of the doubt, if you forgive or even help that person through sin, then the same happens to you. Truly helping your brother or sister with a speck in the eye is only good if you also can see. Otherwise, you're just poking out the eye. So Jesus did not say again, leave the speck in your brother's eye. Otherwise, that would just make them go permanently blind. He did say, take out the speck, but only after you and I have honestly seen and admitted our own sin and our need for God's help. So, if no hypocrisy is one of the greatest rules for good judgment, what can we do about it? There are two things. First, how does hypocrisy overcome someone? Hiding sin, ignoring sin, or even failing to check ourselves for sin are all signs of growing pride. Pride will repel people like skunk spray on a dog. Pride allows the power of sin, which is the death of pretty much anything good, to prevail. Pride separates love from our brothers and sisters in need. And in the end, pride makes us so high above others that it's impossible to reach our hands down to help them. And, it's, and no one can reach their hands to us and help us. Instead, all we can do on our high place is point with our accusing fingers down at those below us. At its worst, pride requires us to hate others for their sins so that we can hate ourselves less for our own sins. How are we able to show God's love in this state? Clearly, hypocrisy suppresses the truth of Jesus' love for helpless sinners like all of us. The second thing we should understand about hypocrisy is how to overcome it. Honesty in confessing our sins with other believers is a sign of humility. Humility will draw others like lost and hungry hikers to the safety and comfort of a warm campfire. Most importantly, humility puts us on the same level As everybody else. Then how much easier is it for them to reach out their hands to us or us to reach out our hands to them? We're on the same level. Coming together as a family is possible then because I am no longer the center of importance. Through any sin struggle we are in this fight together. So how about this? Instead of shooting our wounded Could we dress each other's wounds on the battlefield until we all make it back to the great physician and get his help? A third main point for how to judge comes again from Jesus in John 7. So let's look at that. This is verses 15 through 19 and 21 through 24. The Jews marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learned when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority speaks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and there is no falsehood. Hasn't Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. But Jesus answered them, I did one work, he healed a lame man. And you all marvel at it. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me on the Sabbath? Uh, I made a man's, a, whole man's, a man's whole body well. Don't judge by appearances. Judge with right judgment. So again, here the point Jesus makes is don't judge by appearances. Why? because you'll miss the heart of the matter. The first thing that appeared wrong to the temple leaders was that Jesus didn't have a teaching license from one of their rabbis. So there was no way he could have the ability or authority to teach, right? Today, we might say something like, how can God use someone like that? However, Jesus did not need a crown of superiority placed on his head by these men to teach. He already had God the Father as his rabbi in verse 16. So how did they miss the heart of God? In verse 18, their bad judgment stemmed from the selfishness that comes from trying to honor themselves. This proved they were not speaking for God. Honoring God meant pointing away from yourself and to God. Then you can speak the truth. So back, uh, one more point here. Uh, I think the greatest failure the temple leaders had here was because they completely missed the whole point of the law. No big deal, right? They thought the law was a giant business tool where they could manipulate people with total authority for money and for power. Above all, the law meant for them that to do what they said was the same as to do what God said. This, of course, perfectly enabled their superiority complex. So, in, another, in other words, in terms of bands and music, instead of the temple leaders being the righteous brothers, they were the self-righteous brothers. So needless to say, they never sold an album at least not one that would actually prove there was any actual concern or love for God's people. Only the appearance of good mattered to them. And that's exactly Jesus' point in confronting this wrong judgment. So tell me, what are the two commandments that are by its own definition the greatest commandments in the law? Love God, love people. So... um, The leaders here completely misjudged Jesus' healing because they failed to see God's end goal, to make a family after his own heart, bearing his name, free from sin. The law was made for the people's good. The people were not made just so that the rules could have somebody to follow them. Jesus and the temple leaders saw completely different things in the same situation. Why? Because what their hearts were set on determined what they saw. So do we have the same lenses to see what Jesus sees? Let's take a look at two photos next. And I want to ask you: in this, this these two photos here, which photo has the people that you would want to have influence over your children? Which one is a good example? Which one is bad? Which would you welcome into your church? Well, the guy in the suit looks pretty respectable, trustworthy, educated. Surely if your kids followed down this road with this guy, they'd end up just as good, right? And the rock and roll band, anything but respectable. Certainly they would lead your kids into the party scene of sex and drugs, drunkenness, all kinds of wild living. Actually, the guy in the suit is none other than Bernie Madoff the biggest Ponzi scheme criminal in American history. He ended up stealing $64.8 billion from investors. So thousands of people's lives were ruined from this sharp-dressed, smooth-talking thief. How good of an example to your kids does he look like now? Do you want your kids in prison with a reputation like his? How could someone looking good like this guy Have been so much misjudged. Should we be afraid to dress in a suit because people will think we're a thief like him? That's the logic that some people have sometimes on the outside, looking only on the outside. So, who are the guys in the other picture? They're an 80s rock band called Striper. And contrary to what some believed, they filled most of their songs with a clear and bold message that Jesus can save us from our sins. They weren't perfect, but they told young people that they didn't need drugs to help them push on and Jesus could fill that void. Amazingly, this message was shared with hundreds of thousands of young people and who were very into evil and darkness, and many of them would likely have never set foot in a church to hear about Jesus. Then as to this day, these guys throw out Bibles at the end of every concert to the crowd. Striper was ridiculed and called evil by some in the church at that time because they looked and sounded like other bands who were promoting evil. But were they evil? Were they misjudged? How can we know? Again, don't judge by appearances. Judge them and others correctly, and Jesus showed us how. We should look at the heart. But how do we do that more specifically? Let's look at Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45. For no tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its fruit. So, here again with Jesus the heart is the heart of the matter. Look for the fruit of God's Spirit and His works to come out of good people. If you see them, don't call them evil only based on external things like looks or how much guitar is used. If you do, you may miss God's moving among you, and you may also be found calling God's moving something evil, just because of the people he chose to move through. Yes, any of us can try to rightly judge someone and be fooled by a faker, and genuine followers of Christ can still wreck their lives by getting into a life of sin. However, that never lessens the importance of still looking as best we can at the heart with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, not just the outside of someone's life. After all, think about King David. Great guy, right? Well, don't forget, he was an adulterer and a murderer, and yet he was still called a man after God's own heart. He was forgiven, and he gave many humbled sinners everywhere hope in his songs. His overall life, even though imperfect, still showed the fruit of God's presence in his life. So to say things in a different way, as a Christian comedian once said, God didn't come to change my shirt. He came to change my heart. So moving on, Jesus had the most famous speech about judging, but Paul wins when it comes to the most confusing things said about judging. In one book, six chapters, he goes back and forth saying, do judge, don't judge, do judge, don't judge. So let's take a quick look and see if we can figure out Paul's reasonings behind these. So next, in my fourth main point, don't judge out of your mind, God will think you're crazy. Do judge out of God's mind. The world will think you're crazy. Judging what's valued in human hearts apart from God brings bad judgment, and using what's valued in God's heart leads to good judgment. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 2, verses 15 through 16. A spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord? So as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So here, spiritual Christians can make judgments in good ways, but how can they be exempt from judging others? Kind of sounds like a double standard to me, right for hypocrisy. However, Jesus has already told us we can help each other remove sinful planks and specks. So to understand this little bit, look at the other verses in the context. That's a good rule of thumb in general anyway. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, now verse 10, and then 12 through 14. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, Now, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So here Paul is contrasting believers who have God's Spirit and unbelievers who don't. Those with the Spirit can understand God's ways and desires. So as a result, out of God's mind, unbelievers, I'm sorry, believers can make good judgments. However, when unbelievers, without the Spirit, judge Christians as they live like Christ, unbelievers' judgments are not accurate, binding, or defining. They use the world standards, and so are disqualified from rightly judging. Without the Spirit, they are out of their minds. So let's look next at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. Paul's still talking to the Corinthians here. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, for you are still in the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So here again, Paul is starting to disqualify even believers here if the believers are also acting like the mind and behavior of those in the world. Out of their minds, even believers cannot rightly judge a truly spiritual Christian operating out of God's mind. All right, so for my fifth point here, let's look at uh, the Corinthians again. They're moving to a new problem. The poison of superiority. Enter in the evil music. Here, the poison resulted in division, bragging, jealousy, arguing, and even a greater reliance on the apostle name brand instead of Christ himself. So 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 7 says, This is how one should regard us, Paul, Apollos, and Peter. That's who he's talking about. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, Paul, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court." In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. He will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And each one will then receive his commendation from God. I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers that no one may be puffed up in favor of one versus another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not? So again, if we only look at verse 5, it seems to say, never judge because that's God's job, right? While only God can see all the hearts and minds to judge perfectly, he will have the final judgment, yes. Other verses have already shown that we too should judge rightly. So what in the world is Paul saying here? You have to look closely here at the real problem. Again, the church ranked apostles based on superiority so that they too could have superiority. To confront this, Paul shows them there's nothing for them to hang their pride on And the apostles and followers have done nothing, been given everything by God. So instead of looking for the rewards of human ranking, true Christians, the scripture says here, should look to God for their rewards of faithful service. Superiority can quickly lead to the cult of personality. Then, as today, the messenger of God's salvation can be seen as the Savior, whether or not we consciously admit it or or not. Superiority suppresses the truth of God's love for everybody without favoritism. Uh, Matt Smethurst, again, had some good comments on this. He said, for the superior church, quote, "...we alone in this church have all the correct theology and know how to do church. We assume we have it all together. In reality, however, Christ has put his name on immature Christians." and with undeveloped and imperfect theology. A church that is humble and focused on Christ can acknowledge shortcomings and be open to learn from and even work with other parts of God's church at large. By standing on God's word the best we know it now, we can acknowledge some things in the Bible are just not clear. And it's okay to have differences of opinion about non-essentials of the faith. Things like music styles, carpet colors, all those things that have split different churches. The worst part of the church of the superior is that it gives us license in our own minds to hate and degrade and tear down anyone or any church that is not superior. So, can we care less about being superior in our doctrine? And more about connecting people with Jesus. Let's move to the next main point here that Paul talks about again. um, The next part, Paul is trying to protect individuals and the church family because one Christian sin can affect the rest of the church as well. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 and then 9 through 13. Uh, I'm just going to hit a couple of highlights real quick for time's sake. Here's the story for this. In their church, there was a man who was having sex with his father's wife. And the church, instead of putting him out, they were kind of proud about it. And so Paul here said, I have already, from a distance, pronounced judgment on this person. He is making judgments here. And he says, I'm going to give this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that the spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So he's doing this to a believer. He says, don't you know that a little bit of yeast affects what? All of the dough. And he says, he's, again, talking about a Christian, anyone who bears the name of brother. Look at those very last two verses here. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside and purge the evil person from among you. I know, those are tough Scriptures to read. Tough, tough, tough. Church discipline or putting people out of the church, as Jesus outlined in Matthew 18, is never something to be enjoyed. It's never something that we jump to as a quick response. It's a process, and the point is to win your brother or sister back to God. Seemingly, it is the harshest and most unloving thing to do in good judgment. But how do you treat sin? Really, it's actually unloving to God if we mistake His love and patience as a license to continually sin and do whatever we want. It's unloving to our brother or sister if we allow them to destroy themselves and others in the church family. Probably all of us have also seen, in another way, it's most unloving to push away the lost and undying unbelievers outside the church because. They can't stand to look at our sins if we just keep letting them go on and on. So will this life's story of ours draw people to Jesus and the truth of who He is? Let me be clear. God will never completely abandon those who truly have faith in Him. But if we refuse to to deal with sin, at some point, God will allow great suffering such as Paul's handing the man over to Satan here. This is to stop our sinning and to protect God's holy name, and it's so easy to forget about that. We are supposed to use good judgment in the church family so that no one thinks, well, if if they can get away with that, surely I can get away with this. That's what we have to avoid. The yeast of sin always affects all the dough eventually in a bad way. Let's move to another main point here where believers are supposed to privately deal with matters and disputes between them so that unbelievers are not turned off by their public fighting. Um, For time's sake, that's pretty much the story here in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8. Please read it. I wish we had more time here. But again, what they're doing in the church here in the Corinthians is they're bringing each other into court. They're suing each other and they're doing this in front of those who don't know God. So what do you think their impression is of God from this? Is there any kind of love here? I don't think there's any doubt that they had any impression of love from people doing this. So Paul said, look, inevitably in all families, disputes and disagreements are going to arise. So Paul's asking, is your aim really love? Because good judgment is always based on love. Work it out with those in your church family instead of going public. Maybe call on the leaders of the church if you need to. Or even choosing to let it go and forgive the offender, like Paul says at the end of this scripture. Always consider what your actions will cause unbelievers to think about Christ. All right, quickly for the next main point. Whose image are we trying to make others into? Our image or God's image. It's the great problem of confusing personal opinions and preferences with God's requirements in God's kingdom. Journey with me into Romans 14. We'll do a little more reading here because I think this is so important. So be strong. Stay with me. Uh, read what's on the slide, not what's in your phone or your Bible. I'm going to skip some verses here. One person esteems one day better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Why do you despise your brother? So then each of us will give an account to God, give an account of himself to God. Decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what what you eat, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. So don't let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves God in this way is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. The faith that you have, your own personal opinions and preferences, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. All right. Thank you for your patience there. Now, let's look at this. The Creator's hand has made all races, all people, thousands of different languages. He could have made them all one, right? But He didn't. He's called many differences. Good. God gave us room to choose many things in life the way we want to. God is not a micromanager for every little decision, and neither should we be. In fact, God tells us not to even be busybodies, sticking our noses in everyone else's lives where they don't belong. That's 1 Timothy 5, 5, verse 13. It's not on the slides. There are several places that say that. Things like, your kids are in public schools? Your kids are in private private teaching? You're doing it at homeschooling? Are you really parenting like a mom should? What's wrong with you? You're still single. All of these things. Maybe we should think that minding our own business might prevent a lot of unnecessary hurt from reaching people with feelings just like us. (coughs) Above all here, if something is not clearly explained as sin in the Bible... It's an opinion or a preference. Watch out. If we are arrogant enough to step into God's place to make everything and everybody like us, we are defacing and devaluing God's art of variety. Just because someone does something different from us does not make it bad or in need of correction. Certainly, Paul says, there's no grounds for hatred of someone different. Hold your personal preferences and opinions with the freedom to live them and the conviction that they are beneficial to you. There's no need to let others talk you out of them, and yet respect the same in others, too. Never force your preferences on others. Don't rub the freedom of your preferences in the faces of others while you're around them, too. So, As you are considerate in this way, this is what love looks like. Again, are we making people like us or like Christ? Sometimes opinions make minions. Better to be, better like Him to be than me. I'll tell you another strange story, real quick, from actual church history. There was a a group of churches that during the Civil War, amazingly, did not split. Almost every other group across the nation split during that time for obvious reasons. They did not. And yet after the war, this church split very dramatically. What do you guess it was over? Probably the least controversial thing in any church today. The church organ. Whether they should have an organ in the church. Some believed that was evil. Some believed, oh, it's okay. So they split over it. How silly does that seem to divide over? And yet, how silly will the things that we divide over today seem to our children down the road? Growing up and into young adulthood, I had a a love of 80s rock music, and like the band Streifer we saw, and it, it helped me a lot in my faith. It strengthened me also, But later, I met a couple at my church who had a real problem with listening to rock music because it reminded them of their lives before being Christians. Then their lives were filled with all kinds of sin that tore them down. They didn't want to go back to that. I don't recall all the specifics of their story, but we all know wild living—whether drugs or alcohol, sex outside of God's plan—all of that has a high cost. So I respected their story and preferences and I would never have played Christian rock around them. Without forcing my opinions on them, I had no qualms at all about cranking it up in my car or at home alone. Okay, so one other two-second mention for some of you who are really, really into checking out every scripture about judging. James 4, verses 11 through 12, also talks about judgment, and it seems to say, don't judge here. But in two seconds' time, I'll just say, James is trying to say, good judgment never aims at slander, tearing someone down with your words. It does not mean here, don't judge. All right, so let me end on a few personal notes here. Put yourself in someone else's shoes. For good judgment, take a moment and think about the times that you have wrongfully been judged. What all did you feel? What things caused the heaviness or the hurt or anger to rise up in you? Here, let me give two poor methods of judgment that commonly cause these feelings and push away well meaning friends and God. First, when someone shows up just to criticize or correct you, but does not show up to be part of your life as a friend. Defenses and anger can come quick. To avoid this, ask yourself, if there were nothing to fix in this person, would I still get together with this person to talk or hang out? If you say no, then do you honestly care about this person, or are they just a project? Guilting or blackmailing them won't change the heart either. It's just amazing how we Christians can forget that in any normal relationship, you have to earn a place to speak into someone's life. That means spending time with them, caring, sharing life together, opening the heart. One of my favorite quotes, even though I always forget who said this, is people don't care what you know until they know that you care. So how much time do you spend praying for this person? Or do you even know what their needs are? You and I must invest in these things to have family and friendship. Then we can speak the truth in love, as Ephesians 4.15 says. We can do this actually because we care about the person and not just because it's our church duty. On a quick side note, unbelievers are people like you and me too. They respond to these same things that we just talked about. Jesus himself said he came to seek and save the lost. He hung out with these people and ate with them. Even the untouchables and the despised people in that culture. He did not remove himself from those dirty people. So when we, however, try to clean up those people so they'll be good enough for God's grace, it's not grace. So we can write off sinners because they... or we can't write off sinners because they think sinning is normal and because we feel uncomfortable around them. So we can't say things like, well, if they'll dress in the right clothes, like me, or if they'll clean up their bad language and stop talking about immoral things so I can be comfortable, and if they will use their willpower without the Holy Spirit, to stop acting like the unbelievers that they actually are, then we can lower ourselves to be around them. We don't say that, but I know I think that sometimes, and that's so wrong. So in the right way, could we show love the way we sing about it here at church? Unearned and unconditional I'll tell you another story about a friend of mine. She was sitting in a mall, and there were some ladies over here that they thought they couldn't, that she couldn't hear them speaking, some older ladies, and they were saying, boy, look at that girl. She was very pregnant. And look at that girl. She must be like maybe 15 at the most, and she's pregnant. That's just terrible. I'm glad I wasn't like that. So what happened in that situation They assumed the reality of the situation, which kind of guarantees failure and anger in most people when you do that. And it kind of did here too. Because the fact of the matter was, she wasn't 15, she was in her 20s, and she was married, but her hands were so swollen from the pregnancy, she couldn't have her wedding ring on. So, again, instead of assuming situations, listen well. Like Proverbs 18.13 says, And then maybe we can do wiser things than those ladies did to just needlessly hurt someone. If you leave today thinking only about how others have misjudged you, you probably missed the part part of what God wants to help you see. The only thing you can let God change is you. Honestly ask, how have I misjudged others? How can I judge better and make it right? What will it take to keep others from Jesus? my hypocrisy, my superiority, my opinions. So why don't we instead help fellow sinners overcome by being friends and family? And just maybe, instead of their saying, don't judge me because you're on the outside, maybe they just might ask, what do you think? Because you're on the inside. Thanks for listening today. Let's pray. Lord, we are all sinners. We all need Your grace. We thank You that You're the one who stepped out and reached out to us first, even when we were Your enemies. Just pray, Lord, that You would help us to be aware of when we use good and bad judgment and because it affects the people You care about so much, whether they're believers or unbelievers. So temper our words. Got our hearts and our minds to, to be like the mind of Christ. We love you. In Jesus' name.